This is the Atherbiz Podcast with Stephen Campbell, session number 21. Welcome to the Atherbiz Podcast. I'm Stephen Campbell, and each week I'll bring you interviews, information, and insights focused on the business of being an author. You can find the episode show notes, links to everything mentioned in the show, and lots more information at theauthorbiz.com. Greetings and welcome to The Author Biz, the Monday podcast focused on delivering actionable information to help you run your business as an author. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for spending some of your time with me today. Most of the United States has just experienced the first real cold snap of the fall, and we're gearing up for the holiday season. There's been record snowfall in parts of the Northeast and temperatures that are well below normal throughout the country, including all the way down south in what is normally sunny Florida. The worldwide studios for the author biz are actually in the second floor condo where my wife and I live. I'm normally able to shut out the noise and record whenever I want, but that hasn't been the case this week. The cold snap caused the temperatures inside our condo to plummet to a chilly 71 degrees Fahrenheit, 21 degrees Celsius, and that caused my wife to turn on the heat, which caused a short in our air conditioning system, which caused us to call a very nice service technician named Earl. Well, there's no room quiet enough in our place to record when Earl is working on the heater or on the phone with a manufacturer's service advisor, so this episode is being put together a bit more last minute than most. As we all know, the responsibility of life and work have a way of adjusting everyone's plans. But it can also be great fodder for fiction, which leads nicely, at least I hope it leads nicely, into our topic for today, which is using your work life, your occupation, or even your profession as source material for your fiction. Of course, some people have more interesting jobs than others. And my guest today, Lisa Black, is one of those people with a really interesting job. She's a forensic scientist, essentially a real-life CSI. Her fiction is loosely based upon her work, but she doesn't feel like she has any special advantage in writing crime fiction based just upon her job. She believes any job can be great source material for a book. Any occupation. As I said, you could flip burgers at McDonald's, and I bet you still have a bunch of interesting stories to tell. Maybe you got robbed one night. Maybe you had a fight breakout. Maybe the manager is, is fooling around with one of the employees, and, and the husband is about to find out about it. You could have all sorts of things happen. So... Anything where human beings interact is, is going to come into play. In this episode, Lisa gives us an overview of the recently released seventh book in her Teresa McLean series, Close to the Bone, and then we get into some of the benefits and pitfalls of writing about your profession. We'll also get into things like publisher changes, sources for getting the details correct when you're writing crime fiction, and we'll even spend some time talking about some of the ways that popular television gets the details wrong, including a very funny riff on shoes and clothing. I know that many of you listen to the Author Biz using iTunes or Stitcher, both of which allow you to subscribe, so episodes are always available to you through your phone. I use both when listening to podcasts, and I appreciate the convenience of having them automatically delivered as soon as new episodes are available. An iTunes listener who goes by the name of M.G. Camacho left a very nice review of the podcast earlier this week. M.G., if you're listening, thanks so much for leaving the review. 
Reviews really help to raise the vis- visibility of the show and make it available to more people who can benefit from the content. This podcast is a labor of love for me. It's not a business. The audience for this kind of information isn't large. The really big podcast audiences come from the How to Make Money or the Tech News shows. This is a show that's targeted to authors who want to improve their business chops. The costs for the show are fairly small. They're hosting and equipment costs, and I try and offset some of those costs with sponsorships and Amazon affiliate links on the AuthorBiz website. I'd love to be able to add transcripts of the interviews at some point, but those are sort of costly, so that uh, may take a little while before that happens. But I know there are people out there that read a lot faster than, than I can talk, so that uh, it, it would be beneficial to have those at some point, and I hope to have them. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible.com, which is actually another affiliate program. If you sign up for an Audible trial through the link or an ad on the AuthorBiz website, I earn a small commission. A few of those commissions each month cover the hosting and equipment costs for the show. Now, there are plenty of affiliate relationships available to podcasters. I choose Audible because I really do love listening to audiobooks, and I really love the way Audible simplifies the process of listening to them. If you like the idea of listening to audiobooks while you're driving or exercising or even working around the house and you'd like to support the show, please consider a free 30-day, no-obligation trial from audible.com. You can sign up for the trial at www.audibletrial.com slash authorbiz and download a free audiobook from over 150,000 titles. I'll also have the link to the offer in the show notes at the AuthorBiz website. Now let's get on with the interview. My guest today is author and forensic scientist Lisa Black, who spent five of the happiest years of her life in a morgue while working as a forensic scientist at the Cuyahoga County Coroner's Office, where she analyzed gunshot residue, hair, fibers, paint, glass, DNA, and all the other things we see on television. Lisa now works about 40 miles up the road from me as a latent print examiner for the city of Cape Coral, Florida Police Department. She's translated her work experience into a series of books featuring Teresa McLean, a forensic scientist who works at the Medical Examiner's Office in Cleveland, Ohio. The seventh book in this wonderful series, Close to the Bone, was published last month by Severn House. Lisa, welcome to the Author Biz. Hello, and thank you. Tell us about Close to the Bone and tell us about uh, Teresa McLean. Well, Teresa is a forensic scientist in, as you said, the, the Cuyahoga County Coroner's Office. She basically has my old job there. And she's sort of my alter ego, just like me, only faster, stronger, smarter, and divorced. <laughs> and you know, her job there entails um, gunshot residue, hairs, fibers, blood, DNA, you know, fingerprints, etc. So I try to keep all the books close to reality, closer than, say, you know, the, the CSI TV shows. Not to knock them or anything, but, you know, I, I like to take the opportunity to show people how forensics works in the real world, that you don't always get answers, that, you know, lots of tests don't always tell you what you need to know, and nothing is as quick or as easy as, as they make it seem. So, <laughs> but what I do fudge a little bit is that she spends more time out of the lab than in it. So with this book, 
I tried to remedy that, and it almost all takes place within the actual coroner's office building at her place of work. And she comes back in the middle of the night after um, going to a crime scene for a traffic accident, and it's, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, and she's tired, and they got her out of bed. And she walks in, and usually at night there's two, there's always two deskmen. What we just, our term was just deskmen. And they are the guys that would check in the bodies that funeral homes and ambulances would bring the bodies in, and they'd get all the vital information and write them down and record them, assign them a number, enter their personal property, and basically do a lot of heavy lifting of these heavy bodies on and off the gurneys, et cetera, and, again, release them, give them back to the funeral homes when they're, they're ready to go. And, it's, of course, it's a 24-hour job, but there's always at least two people there. So she walks in and realizes it's really quiet in the building now. It's a morgue at night, so of course it's quiet. But still, she walks up to the deathman office, and there is one of them lying on the floor in a puddle of his own blood, dead, and the word confess written in his blood on, on the cabinet above his head. And so within an instant, she's alone in this building surrounded by dead people with obviously a crazed murderer. The other deathman is missing, is but she doesn't know, is he the killer? Is, was he kidnapped by the killer? Is he somehow coerced? What's going on? Where is he, and is he all right? So that's where the story begins, and it, and it takes off from there. And it was a it was a really interesting beginning because we're inside <laughs> Teresa's head and she sees this body and she's worried about the forensic evidence. She's not sure he's dead. She calls nine one one and they want her to start doing things and she's she doesn't know whether to do them and it's it was I don't oddly funny for for such a gruesome yeah. scene. <laughs> well, that's actually for, a little bit from real life, because I was on my work uh, way to work here in Cape Coral one morning, and there's an intersection near my house that I try to avoid, because I have seen two accidents happen right in front of me. And this one did, dump truck, I think, hit a a pickup truck that blew the stop sign. So I, you know, I got out, I ran up to the scene, and I'm calling, you know, on my cell phone, I'm calling dispatch and saying this accident just happened, and, you know, there's a woman on, on the ground, and, you know, I could tell. I've been around enough dead people that mm-hmm. I took one look at her, and I knew she was dead. And, you know, the nice, calm dispatcher is saying, well, we, we need to try CPR. Can you turn her on her back? And I just stood there and said, can I get my camera first? Because <laughs> it was so ingrained. You never touch or move anything until you photograph. Uh-huh. And she was so perfectly, she was in a fetal position. She was dead instantly, by the way. Yeah. Uh, the, she had actually, it had snapped her spinal cord within her, without breaking her neck somehow. Mm. It's, it's an odd situation, but anyway, she was dead. But, I mean, it, she was so perfectly in this fetal position on her side I'm just like, can I get my camera first? And she's like, no, we really need to try and get some oxygen to her head, okay? I'm like, all right. <laughs> well, you you translated that brilliantly into the book because it was it, it was a really good scene. And then, you know, it's just the way her mind works, and it, it's just really fun being inside her head and, and just all of this little insider stuff that you're able to bring because of your background. And uh, it's interesting that you said that she's just you except all these other things. And I, if I were your husband, I would be a little bit concerned since she's divorced. 
Yes, but he never reads the books or attends any of my lectures, so... Oh! Um, <laughs> well, he has gone to one or... You know, he's gone to one or two, but basically, yeah, I, I don't ever have to worry about what I say in the books because he doesn't read them. Well... <laughs> All right, so I, I, I want to get into a little bit about what it's like to write a series of books based on your work history. There have to be some interesting things there, but before we do that, I need to get a little bit more history from you, and if, if you could share it with uh, with listeners. When, for example, did you decide you wanted to write? When did you become a forensic scientist? How do these two things tie together? Do they tie together at all? What's the backstory for Lisa Black? Well, I always wrote. The writing actually came first. I I wrote as a child, basically. I wrote as far back as I can remember. I would write letters to my favorite cousins, and I'm still a prolific letter writer. But I would include little cartoons putting us in our favorite TV shows, which was, at the time, Batman and <laughs> with Adam West. Hey, don't and, laugh. I, that was mine, too. <laughs> yeah, and, and Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So I would make up these wild adventures for us, and so I'd put us in the story. And I just kept doing that my whole life. And eventually, you know, I stopped trying to draw pictures because I was a terrible artist and just stuck with words. And they got longer and longer and longer until after um, high school. In high school, I had gone to Washington, D.C., uh, just basically on, on a whim because my girlfriend said, hey, they got this government study program, let's go. So I said, okay, you know, I love to travel. I'll always go anywhere. And I just fell in love with the city. But I fell in love with the buildings and the monuments and the marbles, not what people actually did there. So I should have been an architect, but instead <laughs> I majored in political science, graduated with no marketable skills whatsoever except typing, and became a secretary for 10 years. Okay. So then I'm sitting in front of a word processor all day, so I thought, well, what the heck, I'll write a novel. Because I had continued writing stories, even even through college, and they'd get longer and longer. And <laughs> so I said, hey, let, you know, how hard can a novel be? <laughs> so I wrote six, you know, and they were all mysteries. I mm-hmm. always wrote mysteries. That was all I was ever really interested in. And they're all sitting in my attic, and should be. <laughs> and... After a while, I finally figured out I needed, I not only needed to find an agent and, you know, get better at writing, hopefully, but I also needed a new day job. So I went back to school, got the degree in biology um, while working full-time still, and went to work at the coroner's office because I always, again, always loved mysteries. I always wanted to be a detective, but I didn't want to be a cop. Mm -hmm. I don't really like dealing with people under stress. (laughs) Mm. I I tend to be limited dealing with people at all. So so being a cop was definitely not for me, but being in forensics was really the best of both worlds. So from political science to forensics. Now, when you were writing books as a secretary, you're writing mysteries. Was there a theme to the mysteries? They were all separate, but it was all standalone, um, you know, amateur sleuths. Okay. Housewife, uh, bartender, you know, things like that. Okay. So then after I moved to Florida, suddenly I had no job, no friends, no family. So I started writing again just to stay sane, really. It was just um, something to take my mind off how homesick I was. And since I now had the forensic background, it just made sense to tell the mystery story from the forensic point of view 
And, of course, at the same time, around the same time CSI premiered, and all the publishers were looking for the next Patricia Cornwell, mm-hmm. which I turned out not to be, to their disappointment. <laughs> but then I did uh, get published. And just going through your, your Amazon records, what I was able to find, it looks like almost everything that you've written that's been published uh, revolves around law no, enforcement. No, 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 no. no I, have, I have many, many books that have not been published. <laughs> uh, well, but, but that have been published. Um, I, I've, I've seen different names. Um, but but all the ones that I saw revolve around law enforcement, and most of them forensic medicine. So is, is, when you became published, was it all forensic medicine from that point forward? Yes. Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And so you were writing that before you got the job with the Cape Coral Police Department? No, I... I didn't write when I was at the coroner's office because I didn't have time. No, at the Cape Coral Police Department. Right. You'd moved down and started writing. Yes. Then I moved down, and then I started working for the police department, and then I started writing. Okay. Again. And now I wrote with the the forensic background. All right. And, And do the people that you work with, do they look for themselves in the book, in the books? They well, they're all set in Cleveland, so they don't really connect themselves with with the um, the people in the book. Although the secretary, I mean, not our secretary, our contract employee Carol, who is a retired EMT, and she just works on the ten prints. She just works cleaning up the ten prints on a part time basis. She finally convinced me to put her in a book, so she's going to be in. <laughs> going to be in the next one coming out in 2016. She's very excited. So you don't have to worry about creating a character that uh, Teresa works with that's kind of, uh, you know, not not the greatest person in the world. No one's going to be offended. They're not going to see themselves in that because it couldn't possibly be them because they're not in Cleveland. Right. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) And I I don't really use too many characters from life. I it, I don't use real people. It it tends to make things difficult to me because you might need that character to do something, and then you think, well, that person wouldn't do that, and so then you got a conflict there. So most of my characters are completely made up, or I tend to like poach them from TV shows and movies. Do you think if you had continued working as a secretary or just sort of working as an administrator somewhere that you'd be writing mysteries from the standpoint of a secretary now? Probably. <laughs> right, what you know. You right? know, you got to use what you know, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There, there are two schools of thought that I hear. And one of, one of the first things that I wrote, someone said, you can't just write an idealized version of yourself. And then other people, that's exactly what they do, is they write the, an idealized version of themselves in these, in these fabulous circumstances, and it works out extremely well. So I guess that my life was so boring, it just is not fodder for a book. But uh, yours, because of your work experience, is. Well, my life is boring, too. That's why, you know, I embellish it to <laughs> turn into a story. I think anybody could do that. Actually, a, a secretary could be a fantastic detective, because secretaries know where all the skeletons are buried. They have access to everything, depending on, you know, where you work. 
you could uncover all sorts of things as a secretary. One, one of the great things about genre fiction is, as readers, we're able to spend some time inside all of these different occupations. In your case, it's forensic medicine. In uh, the, the case of uh, someone that writes a, a cozy mystery, for example, it might be a hairdresser or in any number of, of occupations. Uh, you, the, the hairdresser occupation probably wouldn't lend itself to the kind of books that you write because yours are mm-hmm. a little more edgy. It, it's something that is, is really interesting for, for me as a reader to be able to put myself in these places and learn about these different lives. How, how difficult is it or easy is it to keep a series going, going through seven books when you're just essentially developing the character, developing a long-term character arc and work history arc and relationship arc, all these things, but keeping the work-related information fresh? Well, keeping the work-related information fresh is easier, I think, than trying to keep her personal life fresh, in a sense, because forensics is such a wide field, and there's so many... There's a never-ending combination of things people can do to each other. So there's always fodder there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, of course, now it can't just be like the old days where Ellery Queen took on a case because somebody came and said, I need you to solve this. All the detectives are expected to be personally involved in their cases. She can't just investigate a homicide because that's what she does for a living. Although, frankly, that is what she does for a living. So why that's no longer enough, I don't know. That's the hard part, is trying to come up with a reason why she would be personally invested in this particular investigation. Because the truth is, you don't. These are all complete strangers to me. The killers are complete strangers to me. I feel sorry for the victims, and I hope the killers are are caught and convicted, but it doesn't affect me personally one way or the other, whether that happens or not. And that sounds very callous, but how else could it possibly be? It's not, I'm not God. It's not under my control. And I still have, uh, you know, a household and a family, and I still have to remember people's birthdays and send out my Christmas cards and bake pies for Thanksgiving. All Mm -hmm. that still has to be done, whether or not there was a homicide last week. I I remember being at a panel that you spoke on at Sleuthfest, where you said something that was sort of similar uh, to that, and it stunned me. It, it really did, because I, I, you read and you watch TV, and we assume that law enforcement personnel are always personally invested in these things, and the reality is, just like you said, it's, it's not possible. <laughs> and you have to yeah. work pretty hard to have it be possible, like having a desk man be killed, essentially, uh, soon after you walk into work at 3 in the morning. Yes, that's true. That solved the whole problem of her being personally involved, because, I mean, she couldn't get any more personally involved. Although it was still sort of, it was interesting, the, the edge that you walked with the character. She cared about this guy. She worked with him, but she didn't really know him, and it's like that. Eh. Yeah, and she it, didn't it, even really like him. I mean, he was kind yeah. of obnoxious. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it, a crime happened, and she needs to get involved, and she needs to solve it. But that, it's an interesting perspective. All right. Now, you travel a lot. You go to conferences and you you speak and you do these things. Do you speak to other authors who who 
do essentially the same thing that you do, but not in forensics, you know, not with medicine, not with law enforcement, but with specifically their, their work. Lawyers, of course, do it a lot. There's a lot of legal fiction, uh, legal mysteries that are good, really good, written by attorneys. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you find lots of other people where the work is, is, is really great fodder for stories? Yes. I mean, I think uh, most authors will use, you always use aspects of your life. Again, you write what you know, you write what you're familiar with, and if you have some sort of occupation, any occupation, as I said, you could flip burgers at McDonald's, Mm -hmm. and I bet you still have a bunch of interesting stories to tell. Maybe you got robbed one night, maybe you had a a fight breakout, maybe the manager is is fooling around with one of the employees and and the husband is about to find out about it. You could have all sorts of things happen. So anything where human beings interact is is going to come into play. And it's it's a type of fiction where I think particularly occupations lend themselves to being used in the plot because it's it's a medium for which something to happen. Mm-hmm. You know? And most, like, and it, for me in particular, you know, I don't have children, so I don't really identify with the, with parenting issues. I don't know anything about that. I don't have any experience in that. And I'm not super into, you know, romance, um, so I don't write romances. And you know, other things, other areas like that, if, if you don't have a lot of identification with that particular segment, you're not going to write those kind of books. So using the occupation as a springboard for the story just works better for me. Let, let's step back. You wrote under an, uh, Elizabeth Becca. My first two books were published under Elizabeth Becca, which and, is actually my maiden name. That's the name I was born with. Okay. And but that, my family always called me Lisa. You, and they were published through Hyperion, and mm-hmm. then... Of course, I didn't turn into the next Patricia Cornwell, so Hyperion dropped me. The next four books were published through HarperCollins. And then the and last the, three... And those, those were the first four in the, the Teresa McLean. The Lisa Black series, okay. yes, All right. in the Teresa McLean series. And let, let's talk for a minute about the name change and, and why... I, I think I understand why an author would change their name after being dropped by a publisher, but uh, maybe you could explain why you did. Well, my agent advised it because it's actually easier to sell a new author, a brand new author, than someone who's been published before and who didn't turn into the next Patricia Cornwell. <laughs> um, you know, it's, everyone's looking for the next big thing. Everyone's looking for something to go viral, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's easier just to start over than to you know not have the best, the most impressive track record in the block, even though mine was definitely not bad. It just, it was not, you know, Harry Potter. So we decided to start over. Happily, I've not had to do that again, because now I have enough of a following that it would be, do more harm than good to start over with a new name. And you, 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 you put out four books through that publisher, and then yes. you switched to Severn? Yes. Mm-hmm. Why the switch? Because HarperCollins didn't want me anymore either. Okay. All right. And, and, and this is the life was, of a traditionally a... published author, unless you are Patricia yes. Cornwell or David Baldacci yeah. or, or something like that. This is what happens. 
I was the victim of the the apocalypses, you the people call it. <laughs> and uh, you know, like so many midlist authors, yes. we were dropped right and left. When you were first signed, did you did you have an understanding of what it was actually going to be like, or where there were there these stars in your eyes that you know I've I've got this publishing deal and it's just going to take off, and I am going to be the next Patricia Cornwell without thinking about what are the odds of that really happening? I always hoped that, of course, yes. but I am actually, if I say so myself, fairly realistic. I, you know, my parents were always very realistic. My father was very conservative, uh, you know, don't count your chickens till they're hatched kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I never expected anything in particular. If If things worked out, that was wonderful, but I never thought it was destiny that I would be a, a you know a huge New York Times bestseller of you know of course that's what I want but right, right. I was at least sensible enough that I never quit the day job <laughs> I put a whole lot of the money into a retirement plan and uh, as you can see I still haven't quit the day job <laughs> and why would you it seems like you enjoyed yeah. it at least your character in the book enjoys it <laughs> I do. I, I I like my day job, and I particularly I like my coworkers. So I'm, you know, it's it's not a huge goal of mine to quit. What advice would you have for a beginning author who's thinking about writing a novel and putting it in a workplace that they're extremely familiar with? Would, would there be specific pieces of advice you would have? Things to do and things to not do. Hmm. Well, of course, my advice to any writer is read all the best-selling authors that write the kind of thing you want to write. And if you can take a if writing course here or there, I, I had never done that, and I wish I had. I think I would have had less of a learning curve you know, <laughs> if, uh, if I had done that. And if you can't do that, then read a bunch of books on writing just to learn the structure. And after that, using your occupation, definitely, if you do use anybody, really disguise them. (laughs) (laughs) Change genders, change every single physical characteristic about them, if you Mm -hmm. can. And uh, use, you know, make a Frankenstein. Use parts of different people if you want. They don't, if you do loosely base somebody on a real person, not every single thing about them has to be like that person. You can combine two different people. That's that would be my advice, and try and take the the more interesting parts of your occupation, and the less interesting parts just summarize. <laughs> Remember that you're not <laughs> right. writing a textbook. Right. You know, I, I know sometimes I tend to go into too much detail, but I really do try not to. And the detail is is really what makes your books. So authentic, too. I mean, I guess there is a fine line, and if you crossed it, people wouldn't read the books. But there's enough detail that you feel like you're an insider and you're learning by reading the books, which makes reading them even more fun. Yes, exactly. You need you need some detail. You need to introduce people to aspects of the occupation that they may not be aware of. So, but some readers like a lot of details. Some readers don't. So right. you're never going to please anybody. You just try and find a, a comfortable middle ground. Now, for people that are out there uh, listening who write crime fiction and are unsure about some of the details about forensic medicine, are there specific books that you would recommend they look to for for information? Well, Doug Lyle, I believe, writes 
Forensic Science for Writers or Forensic Science for Dummies. Yes, and, and <laughs> I have a copy of, of that, and it's really good, yeah. And there's a number of online resources. There's, um, you know, writers groups and all sorts of question and answer forums. There's, I, I know I'm on something called Jobster, it's like J-O-B-S-T-R, where you can ask questions of of professionals. Any, really? I mean, they have a whole huge list of professionals, it's not just forensics, it's anything, you know, cops or doctors or, you know, bank tellers or anything, and you can ask them questions. And it, you don't have to be a writer to do that, just, uh, you know, you can just be curious about it. I get a lot of questions from students and just, you know, people who, uh, their crime was committed against a family member and they want to know, you know, how does this really work? So there's things like that. Then, of of course, you can always visit your local law enforcement agency. The the medical examiner's office, usually you can't get a tour unless you're with a, a group that normally would get a tour, <laughs> like a police academy or nursing students or sometimes, and that varies from office to office. There may be some that will have no problem. Sure, just come on in. We'll show you around, and, and then there will be other ones that say, you know, no, this is you know, um, family members, and we can't have just gawkers wandering around. So, mm -hmm. you know, but you can at least try. You, you never know until you ask. What do you see on television that grates on your nerves the most with regard to forensic medicine? Oh, that um, the women wear four-inch heels. <laughs> um, I thought it was a requirement. I thought to be a CIA agent or a, yeah. a forensic specialist of any type, you had to wear at least four-inch heels, maybe higher. Yes, yeah, and they're all wearing low-cut shirts, you know, uh, skin-tight low-cut shirts. And, you know, maybe in Las Vegas that's normal for everybody, but... It, you know, to me, if you're a bank teller, you wouldn't dress like that for work. That's that's not appropriate wear for anybody. <laughs> and, you know, if a family member of yours has just been murdered and, you know, you're counting on the police to solve the crime, do you want to really want someone walking in who looks like a Barbie doll? I mean, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with being attractive, but, right. you know, there's, there's just a little bit of a line there. And truthfully, we don't. We wear... We, I have to wear boots, which I don't like. Mm -hmm. um, I call them Frankenstein boots. But we also wear, uh, you know, I wear bulky BDU pants and a polo shirt. I'm, I wear a uniform. But even when I was at the coroner's office and they didn't provide uniforms or anything, you wore what you wouldn't be too upset if it got ruined because it probably would eventually. When you're working around, you know, blood, dirt, black powder, bleach, I ruined like three pairs of pants with bleach because we used to bleach mm -hmm. the counters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you just you you don't get you don't wear clothes you're too fond of. Certainly not designer skinny jeans. <laughs> <laughs> and body approved used to drive me crazy. Um, you know, my husband got kind of hooked on body approved uh -huh. with Dana Delaney and then the the girl who used to be seven of nine on, on Star Trek and, and was the, were pathologists and they're in they're walking around on tile floors all day mm -hmm. and they're wearing four inch heels and let me tell you I wore high heel boots to the coroner's office one morning and by noon I could like barely walk so you know it's painful plus they're wearing like skin tight cocktail dresses. It, no. When you, 
I've been around a number of, of female pathologists, and they wear stuff that's comfortable because you are up and down and moving around and, you know, having to pull on plastic aprons over you and everything else. And, and no, you're, you're going to wear something that's that you can exist in for more than an hour without wanting to scream. When we write, we live in a story world. When we work, we live in our work world. Yours are so close together. Does that cause you any work-life balance issues? Um, no. No, I don't think so. Okay, all right. I mean, sometimes I'll be at work and think, oh, this is cool. I should use this in a book. Uh-huh. And sometimes my coworkers will say, oh, this is cool. you got to use this in a book. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, sometimes I have. But, no, for the most part, when you're at work, this is also what I tell people when they ask if, you know, if it's disturbing or depressing or, you know, affects my sleep or anything like that. I say when you're at a crime scene, you have so much to think of and you have one chance to get this right that you're under a lot of pressure. So I don't, I don't have time to, to stand there thinking about how terrible this is and, you know, be upset that such violence has occurred because I'm thinking, okay, I have to photograph this, we have to video, then I have to sketch, then I'm going to have to measure, and I think I need to take this and I need to take that, but I don't need to take that. And then you got the detectives, you know, <laughs> do you see this? I want you to take that. And you're just hoping you don't forget anything major because you can. You know, you're there for hours. And it's a lot of stuff and a lot of details. You're walking into people's homes. You have no idea what's been disturbed, what's supposed to be there, what's not supposed to be there, what's normal, what's not normal. And there's so much going on in your head. And, and again, you've got one shot. You've got one time to get everything you're going to need for a trial that's going to occur two or three years in the future sometimes. So it's it's a lot of going on in my brain. So I don't usually have time to think of much else. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, as you're saying all of that, I'm sitting here smiling, thinking about your books and, and the way that translates into Teresa and the way Teresa's mind works while she's doing these things. And, and she has all these things running through her mind. And that's one of the things that makes her such... Such an enjoyable character to read, and and makes the book so much fun to read. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. What's the best way for people to follow you, stay in touch with you, or uh, find out what's new in your life? Well, I do have a website. It's www.lisa-black.com, and I am on Facebook, just as Lisa Black, and I'm also on Twitter, as Lisa Black author. Well, I will link to all of those in the uh, in the show notes. I will also link to your Amazon author page. Is there any place else you you'd like me to link to? No, I think that's it. Well, thank you. This has been uh, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, I, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much for your time today. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Author Biz podcast at www.theauthorbiz.com. If you'd like to find out more about the show or anything we mention, just check out the website. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. If you have comments or suggestions, please leave them at the site, or you can email me at authorbiz at gmail.com. Please join us again next week for another informative episode.